Welcome to another episode of Ask the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. You are coming off quite a big week today, aren't you? It sure has been a week, Nadia. It has been a <laughs> real roller coaster of a week over at the old day job. At the old IGN factory, the game journalism factory? <laughs> yeah, I'm quite a big wheel down over at the IGN factory these days. <laughs> Well, I think you are, although you still do have some people above you, so you'll get there. I will get there. So, Nadia, this week it's time for another console RPG quest. This week we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite console of all time, the most notable Nintendo root console ever released. I think everybody has been hotly anticipating this episode. Yes, Nadia, it is time at last to be talking about the Wii U. Yeah, everyone's anticipating this. Right now, everyone's saying the Wii U had RPGs. You know, the Wii U had the best name of any <laughs> Nintendo console ever. It wasn't confusing at all. Nope. The, the gamepad was terrific. It definitely did not look like a Fisher-Price like uh, prototype of the Nintendo Switch. It was just a bang-up console here. So, look forward to talking about this excellent, classic piece of kit. Today is opposite day, just letting you all know out there. So Kat's just playing along. Just in case you didn't realize, I was being sarcastic. By the way, I was being sarcastic. Well, duh. Okay, I kid. I kid the Wii U, but not really. I, the Wii U is not an amazing console. I know that there are some people who out there who defend it. It's probably going to have some nostalgia in about 10 years because that's how it works. People weren't all that up on like the Nintendo 64 back in the day either, or the GameCube. I remember the GameCube being treated as an abject failure until about five years ago when everybody decided that they loved it, actually. How is there going to be nostalgia for the Wii U when, with some exceptions we'll get into, I'm sure, but most of those games have come to the Switch by now? <laughs> I, You know, honestly, that's an excellent question because it's true. A lot of the most hotly desired games from the Wii U, including even the wonderful 101, have eventually yeah. come out for the Nintendo Switch. The Switch just kind of subsumed it. Yeah, I think that, and this is another thing I'm sure we'll get into as well, is in many ways the Wii U was actually a prototype for the Switch. Nintendo took a lot of really, really hard and expensive lessons from that system, as you say, that Fisher-Price gamepad of theirs, and turned it into something just really fantastic at the end of it all. Yes, they did. Well, we'll get to that soon enough. But before we do that, Nadia, I think I'm obligated to tell you the story about the time that I applied to be a localization editor at a shoujo manga mobile gaming company. I heard some, some rumblings about this on Discord. Please continue. Well, suffice it to say that the interview didn't go extremely well, but... <laughs> what did you do? Pee in their coffee? What happened? Well, I think it was like 2013, thereabouts, and I kind of needed a job at this time, and I was willing to look pretty much anywhere, which is why I applied at a mobile game studio hoping to be a localization editor, and it was a, a company that imported shoujo mobile games and localized them. They were like visual novels, right? right. And I was like, whatever, I don't care, I'll, I'll localize anything, you know? It's just, it's just editing, it's fine. 
And I talked to my friend who is a big shoujo manga fan, actually. And I said, hey, give me some pro tips. Tell me about the shoujo manga that I should be familiar with. And she gave me a list. And sorry, I don't remember them because it was like eight years ago. So, but I tried to keep those in mind. And I went into the interview and it was like two dudes, because of course. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That makes tons of sense. Interviewing me, peppering me with questions. And I did my absolute best to pretend that I was a shoujo manga diehard and that oh, you. I was all ready to go. Because, you know, Kat, she loves her shoujo manga. If you're Absolutely. not familiar with shoujo manga, it's more like a kind of manga for young girls. There's a heavy romantic bent, usually. Uh, they tend to take place in romantic or sorry, uh, historical periods, I want to say, like, you know, yeah, France. Like Emma's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good shoujo manga. Yeah, like, and so I did my best to bluff my way through the conversation, but the problem is I don't have much of a poker face, Nadia. And <laughs> I remember at one point they were like, so how much are you into fashion? And I'm just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I love fashion. Fashion is my favorite thing. Before, for, the, for the listeners out there right now, Kat is looking at me. She's wearing like a Minnesota Vikings shirt and like, yeah like i was like oh i'm so into fashion it's like i'm sitting there you know i'm just wearing my i'm not even wearing anything i'm just not i'm not wearing like any makeup whatsoever really right. i'm just being me and yeah yeah i think they were just really put off by the fact that i was just so obviously completely full of shit when i was interviewing <laughs> for this stupid game that uh yeah so they didn't call me back <laughs> oh I, i'm really really surprised was this in japan when you were living there no 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 this was in san francisco i remember okay. taking the bus all the way downtown and navigating what was at the time a giant construction project just to get to the to the office so that i could uh have them ask me questions about fashion and then be like okay bye and I was like, well, that was an extremely awkward interview. They're definitely not calling me back. And you know what, Nadia? They didn't. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Okay, so that's my story about applying to be a localization editor at a shoujo manga mobile gaming company. Nadia, do you have any embarrassing uh, job interview stories since this was, a, this was going around on Twitter? That's why I mentioned this. The only real disaster I could think of was, um, okay, so... Ontario sells its liquor primarily through government stores, uh, the LCBO and the beer store, literally called the beer store, quote, I, I swear to God to you. So uh, there was a job opening at the beer store and I had to go downtown or something for an interview. And I was like an hour late or something and they were walking out to go home. And I, <laughs> and I was like, I'm here for my interview. Can I be interviewed, please? And, and God bless. They, gave, they, they humored me. And uh, so they gave me an interview and it's like, yeah, I'm not getting called back. And I did not get called back. I like that you were a squeaky voice teen in that one. <laughs> I was just squeaky voice out of total embarrassment because I knew it was, I, I should have just given up. I should have just gone right home. We got stuck in terrible traffic, basically. And back then, this was quite a while ago, ago so there weren't really cell phones. There weren't really smartphones. I couldn't get in touch with these idiots. So it was my fault. But at the same time, there was no way I could have alleviated the problem. I applied at Target. I applied at a movie theater. But my first job was, I think I already mentioned, at a KFC, which nice, very formative experience. And I learned a lot about the world from slinging chicken. Yeah. Any sort of job like that, especially a fast food job, 
that will teach you a lot about the human condition very quickly. And hey, because I worked at that KFC, I got a Super Nintendo, which got me to buy Final Fantasy VI, which is why I'm sitting here talking to you right now. There you go. Again, formative experiences. All right, Nadia, let's do a little bit of housekeeping really quickly. If you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor. Go and review it on the podcatcher of your choice. Your reviews will help surface the podcast and it will brighten our day, assuming it's a positive review. You can also follow us on Twitter. I am on Twitter at the underscore Capot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And also, actually, the Blood God is on Twitter at Blood God Pod. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Pod. And Nadia, we just did a special. The Summer of the Rings are officially underway. And the first one we did was Fellowship of the Ring. And we had a blast talking about Fellowship on the Ring of the Ring on its ugh, 20th anniversary. I still can't believe that. Oh, the 20th anniversary of the book. No, the 20th no, anniversary no, of the movie. No. <laughs> well, the book is like, you know, 80 years old at this point. It's quite old. Token, I actually listened to a, to a recording of Token doing a reading from, I think, The Hobbit, maybe Fellowship of the Ring. It was really cool, actually. It was really neat to listen to him read the songs, which are... Because <laughs> if you read The Lord of the Rings and you try to actually read it out loud... Doing the songs and the poems is really hard. It would have to be. Like, I, I know there's probably some people out there who can probably sing it out loud and know what the tune is and everything, but I'd just be reciting it like an idiot. Anyway, you should go listen to our Fellowship of the Ring podcast. We cover the history. We talk about the, we briefly talk about the Ralph Bakshi film. We talk about things like the Council of Elrond. We do, of course, talk about the memes and we talk, and we have lots of nice little audio clips peppered throughout. I think it's a really, nice podcast and it was a great opportunity to get out all the takes i've been storing up about fellowship of the ring onto podcast format and that's why i'm internally grateful to have you nadia so that we can constantly talk about all this stuff that we grew up with back in the day yeah we have a, we have a lot of crossover going over there even though uh like i say in the podcast i was never a big fan of the books uh so my movie knowledge is basically what i have in terms of uh, the lord of the rings but I did love reading The Hobbit, so I, we go into that as well a little bit. All right. Well, if you want to go listen to it, again, patreon.com slash pod, and it is exclusive to our $5 listeners. Okay. Before we head to the news, Nadia, tell me, what is your sacrifice to the Blood God this week? See, I'm still playing Pokemon Snap. I still think it's a really fantastic game, but I only just realized or learned that there are alternate routes in a lot of levels. So I've been going through the same levels over and over trying to grind and missing Pokemon that I actually need to level up with. So I find out, hey, actually, if you like use a Lumina orb here and use the scan and do a little dance or whatever, you will open up a new pathway. I'm like, what? Since when? And the game, as much as I love it, is very opaque with this sort of thing. And one thing I wrote in the notes, you've probably seen it by now, is that Professor Mirror, I swear to God, he's like, he's a stoner. Like, did you ever go to school with high school in particular, with the, with kids who were like, God bless them, were always the sweetest, nicest people, but they smoked way too much pot, and you got stuck with them in your project for your group project, and they had no idea what was going on, so you had to put them on your back and, and carry them through the whole thing. That's Professor Mirror. Like, if, if he won't tell you anything, which he won't, his assistants might tell you. Todd might tell you. Todd is really cool. I really like him. Otherwise, I'm looking at these guides like, hey, uh, what? Uh, you could do that? No one told me this. They would tell you at most, like, hey, I, I get energy readings from the whatever region. Why don't you go check it out? That doesn't mean anything. So thank you, Professor Stoner. You're, you're, you're a huge help. 
I was a sweet, innocent child, so I did not know any stoners in school, Nadia. How can you not know stoners in high school? 50% of the high school is going to be stoners. Well, you know, where I was going to school, it's just like you just didn't smoke marijuana, you know, because that was illegal and, you know, <laughs> it was a gateway drug and you shouldn't be smoking marijuana. You'll be getting it's the reefer. I'm not saying we didn't have the say no to drugs garbage up here, but I don't think it was nearly as aggressive as it was down there. And everyone I didn't smoke pot. but Oh, yes, I was a dare it. graduate, Nadia. Oh, no. Did you watch uh, Cartoon Heroes to the Rescue, whatever that garbage was? I just remember that they brought in somebody who was in rehab and they told us wonderful stories about the time that they burned the flesh off their leg because they put it on a heater because or they couldn't be put under for anesthesia because they had way too much drugs in their system and things like that. And I was just like, wow, I was making faces. uh... Yeah. That, that's propaganda right there. That's pretty, oh, it was that's hella pretty propaganda. terrifying. <laughs> yeah. But I, my young brain did not know this thing. I was like, oh, drugs are scary. I, c- I can't do any drugs. The marijuana will get me. The marijuana will kill you. Anyway, I'm going to have a nice mint uh, tonight to relax. It'll be great. Good. Good for you. You should. Huzzah. Yay. Well, Nadia, did you give up on Mass Effect? No, I'm getting back to that this week. I just uh, haven't really had much time with the TV, so I will be getting back to that. Because I know I, I want to like get into, if not finish it, for our upcoming upcoming episode about Mass Effect and the. I was going to say it's good because in about a week we're going to be doing the episode with Eric Van Allen about Mass Effect for the Pantheon of the Blood God. Yeah, but let's be honest. I love Eric. He's probably going to be doing all the heavy lifting for that one. Like I'll take a breath and he'll be like. Bleh, 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 bleh. <laughs> Speaking of Eric, I was recently on the Normandy FM roundtable about the original oh, cool. Ma- Mass Effect with John Warren and Ken Shepard, and it was really fun. Yeah, I had a good time. Yeah, as uh, we actually got some compliments on Eric's inclusion the other week because he's a lot of fun to podcast with. I We had a blast with that episode because it was just like old times back over at US Gamer. We were all goofing off, having yeah. very loopy. Uh, it was wonderful. I miss Eric terribly. I miss all of our team very, very much. Mm. I really miss uh, Eric and Mike and Matt and Katie. I love everybody over at IGN, and I feel very loyal to them, especially right now. But uh, that U.S. Gamer team, we were being on a small team and having it be so tight-knit, it was really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we really depended on each other, and thankfully we worked really well together. Well, Nadia, I'm still playing Mass Effect, but mostly I'm playing baseball. <laughs> Well, it is baseball season. I mean, hockey playoffs are going on here, but it's still, it is baseball. This is literally the most I've ever played MLB The Show. Like, I, I've played MLB The Show a lot, but this is the longest I've ever actually stuck with it. And it's wild, Nadia. It's taken me a decade, but I have finally figured out how to hit consistently in this game. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! You can hit a ball in baseball. That's probably a good thing. Hitting is really, really hard in that game because you have to track the. Okay, you have to make three decisions the second that the ball leaves your hand, and you have about about one second to actually make a decision. First of all, you have to decide: is it going to be in the zone? Second mm-hmm. of all, you have to decide whether or not it's fast or if it's slow. And you need to decide if you're going to take a swing at it. And then you need to actually do the thing of swinging it. And you have to make this calculation in the space of about a second. Wow. And oh, also, it depends on where the ball is in the zone. So it could be high. It could be low. You also have to suss that out, too. So 
it's really hard and a lot of people struggle with it mightily it just came out on the xbox and people are like how do you hit and it's just like (laughs) well here's a list of suggestions but honestly it's just taking me 10 years of muscle memory to actually kind of get around to the point where i kind of understand to hit and even then i can still be pretty inconsistent that's um i guess it's supposed to really emulate what it is to be up there on a plate with a professional pitcher because my dad Mm. i don't remember when it was, but he did play softball or, or, or baseball or something like that. And he had uh, at one time professionals came in for some reason and just obliterated the team. Like his one of his favorite scenes from The Simpsons is Homer at bat when Homer's like, I've got Wonder Bat. And he's talking up this bat through the whole thing. This has been like such a centerpiece of the episode. One pitch. And that's, that's the end <laughs> of Wonder Bat. That's exactly what it was like. Well, the thing I like about it is even though it has a card based mode, a lot like FIFA, it's so much easier to unlock really high quality players. I've been, I have a really good team and it feels good. Unlike FIFA, which is just constant pain all the time. <laughs> so the lesson here is baseball is good and soccer is constant pain. In soccer, I've never been able to get a genuine, really good player, like a legend. Whereas in MLB The Show, I have like Kirby Puckett and I have all of these other players. And I'm like, hey, they're famous. I know who they are. That's cool. They're in my lineup now. Is MLB the show, is this uh, the, a gambling ripoff the way that FIFA is? I mean, yes. Like I said, it was the same mode. And you can spend money on packs and everything. But mostly it's about grinding for mm. through various challenges and everything. And if you grind through the challenges, you'll get your stuff. And the challenges are very doable. It's just, you know, you got to do them. Or you could short circuit it and try to gamble. I don't really like the gambling aspect. I actually abhor it and i strongly recommend that nobody do it and i kind of condemned that mlb to the show does it but at the same time the mode itself is quite fun so i'm <laughs> playing it do as cat says not as she does but i have this uh, i don't know if i mentioned this on this podcast i have this head cannon where all of my sports teams play on my animal crossing island so there's hamtown Aww. fc and this one is uh a hamtown ham fighters which are <laughs> based on the real-life Nippon ham fighters from Sapporo in the Japanese baseball league. So, so there is something called the ham fighters? So they oh, yes, fight the, with, the like, Nippon ham fighters. Oh, ham. I'm thinking people with ham, like they just hate each other with ham? I, well, it's cool. like a brand. I think Nippon ham is a, uh, ah. an actual brand, That's but that's what they're called. They're, it's probably more like the Hokkaido fighters or the Sapporo fighters, but... I know there's the Tigers, Hanshin Tigers. Yes, the Hanshin Tigers is also a brand. It should be the Osaka Tigers, but yeah, Hanshin. I forget. I think Hanshin is a train line. Oh, really? Oh, that's really cool. Or something like that. And there's the Yumuri Giants, which I think is a newspaper or a news media company of some sort. So Wow, that's really interesting. Yes. When When I was living in Japan, I was always trying to figure out what my team would be. And I kind of picked the Occult Swallows, and that wasn't a great choice so uh i i I think the nippon home fighters are kind of my team because hokkaido minneapolis kind of the same difference honestly more or less when one they're both very cold so there there you are but my beloved ham fighters are actually doing well online so it's been a fun thing and it's fun to play on the playstation 5 so that is what i'm doing i promise i won't talk about baseball too much more on this podcast but it is something that's promise you will break. <laughs> Honestly, I actually have the house to myself this entire weekend for the first time in like a year. Oh, beautiful. 
So I'm going to play a lot of video games and I'm kind of overwhelmed by choices. I'm like, oh, I got Returnal still. I got my Mass Effect Legendary Edition, which has been all over the news. I have a whole bunch of games on my Switch. I got Famicom Detective Club, which is gorgeous. I know. I love playing that game. Oh, my gosh. I have I've actually been thinking of picking it up, but of course, like I don't have a, a pile to begin with, but it, it seems really cool. It is definitely an NES adventure game, but yeah. it is beautiful. I love it. So it looks fantastic. I love how much work they put into that. Those visuals. So I got a lot of catching up to do. Maybe I'll actually finish Yakuza Like a Dragon, she says, optimistic. <laughs> and then you'll uh, look up on Sunday night. Oh, crap. Yeah, no, it'll suddenly be Sunday night. We're like, well, that, that vacation ended. Okay. <laughs> Nadia, let's talk about the news. First thing I want to talk about is I wrote a big thing about Blizzard on IGN, which is relevant to our audience's interests. I spent about a month working on that piece, and it's basically a high-level view of everything that the company has been going through over the past I don't know, three years or so. I talked to a lot of people within the company, a lot of people outside of the company. I talked to leadership. I talked to the director of World of Warcraft and the director of Overwatch 2 and the director of Diablo Immortal. I talked to analysts and investors. And basically, I was trying to ask the, answer the question, why are people leaving? Why is there mm. a perception that there is an exodus around this company? Is the, active, the, is the narrative that Activision has been stepping on Blizzard's throat like real? And like, what's going on here? And the overall picture that I came away with, Nadia, is that, I mean, it's quite complicated in many ways. People are leaving the company for many different reasons. Some of it is mm -hmm. just because they're burned out and they've been working on the game for same game for 10 years or something like All that. Right. Or yeah. maybe they just want, you know, a different atmosphere, like an indie kind of atmosphere. But plenty of others are like, I don't get paid enough. I know I'm like tired. This place is going downhill. I don't want to stick around here anymore. I'm out of here. You know. Right, right. But at least Bobby Kotek is uh, getting plenty of money. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was interesting. So I'm, I'm going to drop an, ex an exclusive morsel for you here. Nah, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> uh. no, no morsels. No morsels. No morsels. Oh, darn. Maybe I'll tell you off, off the podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. I um, actually think it's really cool that you put this all together because Blizzard has always been, look, we all have our companies that we love and Blizzard has always been one of yours for many, many, many years. So this must have been extremely insightful, maybe a little difficult. A little bit heartbreaking in a lot of ways yeah. because for a long time, I kind of had Blizzard up there in my own mind as sort of like Nintendo, you know, as the yeah, of course. ultimate destination, the place to, the actual dream destination to work at if I remember they headhunted me at one point, maybe right after starting at US Gamer to come work for Blizzard in like their esports section or maybe their community section. And I was like, well, I can't move down to Irvine or Irvine, mm -hmm. or whatever, however you pronounce it. I'll never get it right. I, I can't move down to Southern California. Sorry. Um, and so it was kind of a non-starter, but there's always been that little bit of sadness in my heart. It's like, if only they were in the Northern California, I would totally go work for them. But uh, I don't know, like, also, so it has a really cool culture, right? Where, you know, people are like, we're doing it for the game, love of the game, man. We're doing it for the art. We love these games. We're fans. We want to get this right. Like, money shouldn't be an object. We should be taking care of our employees. But 
the double-edged sort of it is that they haven't always done a great job of planning out their release slate. And honestly, probably they spent too much money and hired too much. And now they're going through a very painful contraction in many ways. So it's certainly Activision bears some of the blame for what has been happening over at Blizzard and the way that they've been, frankly, kind of harshly reorganizing a lot of the support services. It's not been a lot of fun for esports. There isn't always a clear vision of what the heck should be going on over there. So the picture that I got of Activision Blizzard is not amazing, honestly. So I I think that better times are legitimately ahead, especially when Diablo 4 comes out. Like I think Diablo Immortal and Diablo 4, and especially those two games, will make a bucket load of money for Blizzard. I don't know about Overwatch 2. So yeah, like better games will be coming out for sure, but maybe maybe it's not the same company that it used to be in many ways. Yeah, I, I really get that impression. I think one problem Blizzard is having right now is, uh, as you say, better times probably are on the horizon, but for now, what do they have? They have World of Warcraft and they have Hearthstone, and not a whole lot is going on outside of those. I mean, they're working on some mobile games, and so Diablo Immortal probably, I was talking to an analyst who thinks it could be bigger than Call of Duty Mobile, especially in East Asia. So, I mean, that might be where they're kind of going. It's like, okay, I think they've made a decision that they're going to double and triple down on their established characters, which, I mean, has always kind of carried them along over the years, but also, and will probably be a successful strategy for them, but also isn't terribly exciting. That's kind of it. There's not a whole lot of exciting stuff coming out of Blizzard. I think the most excited I got recently was Blackthorn coming to Switch. So there you go. I think the thing that always made Blizzard really special was that it could recognize a rising category, like a rising genre, really early. And then after the initial pioneers came in, they would come in and refine it. They did that Mm -hmm. with the real-time strategy genre. They did that with MMORPGs. And then some years later, they did it again with the hero shooter in Overwatch, you know. So they'll take some established concepts and they'll really bring them together under a really appealing art style and really appealing characters. And that's why they've been so successful and they've had so many fans over the years. And lately, it doesn't feel like they're taking these concepts and polishing them. It just feels like they're chasing whatever trend happens to be happening in the industry and trying to apply their established characters for it. I mean, if you just look at, you know, the MOBA genre with Heroes of the Storm, like they came in and tried to do what they always did to League of Legends and Dota 2, and they failed, honestly. I think also they really did Overwatch wrong because Overwatch was extremely, extremely fan-based. Like I, I had never seen such a devoted fan base. That was the replacement for TF2 in many ways. And I remember going to Otakon one year when it was really hot and like half the cosplayers were Overwatch characters. And then Blizzard decided, okay, this is more about esports than the fans. And a lot of the my friends who did play Overwatch and were really into the characters and the lore and everything, they kind of got pushed out because, hey, suddenly it's extremely competitive. It's not so much about the lore and the fun anymore. It's just whatever. And I do wonder how Overwatch 2 will recapture any of that because you used to, you used to hear about all these characters like uh, McCree and Mercy and so-and-so and the gorilla dude. And now it's mm-hmm. just 
nobody really talks about them anymore. That fan base and fan bases are everything with a game like that, with a, a service game that look at that, look at Final Fantasy 14, huge, huge fan base that just like go crazy, crazy over the lore and the characters, mostly women, I have to say. And if you push them out, what you got left is, is really a husk, especially for a character based shooter where everything's about that humor, that drama, and it's all gone. It's just bleh. I think you really nailed it, Nadia. I think that I, I know speaking for myself, I loved Overwatch when it came out. It was so right, much fun. Yeah. It was gorgeous. I loved playing characters like Diva who just had their own personalities and everything. And it got stale and the it did get competitive. And I I don't know if that was Blizzard's doing so much as the casual fans got bored and kind of dropped off because they weren't really being served. And when and the result was that the people who stuck with it were the ones who were the most invested and therefore the most hardcore and that is where blizzard ended up going and blizzard has a gaming mindset so they're like oh we're gonna cater to these hardcore very vocal and high hardcore fans in making this game maybe they had a world of warcraft kind of mentality with this Mm. game and maybe they should have been releasing content that was less about competitive and more about deepening the lore people really loved those uh those shorts and everything yeah they were great i would watch them and i wasn't even an overwatch fan but mostly they just release skins (laughs) during halloween and right (laughs) i forgot about just skins upon skin it was like a serial murderer's house there's some great skins but the uh, lead artist of Overwatch just left, actually. So Really? Oh, see, yeah. that's another thing they're losing because Blizzard's character designs and, and all of that are second to none, in my opinion. Yeah, for the most part. So, I mean, I have optimism, actually. I think Diablo 2 Resurrected sneakily looks really good. It good. was a game that was supposed to come out in 2020, and it was just not ready for prime time. It was just a, a total mess. And they were like, okay, we need to, like, this game is, like, yeah. not ready to go. We need to really just push it back quite a bit. And they brought in Vicarious uh, Visions and who, or they merged them into Blizzard. And yeah. now they're working on it. And, like, uh, the people I talk to have nothing but nice things to say about Vicarious Visions. They're like, yeah, those guys are professionals. They're, like, super on it. And you can tell in the... In the uh, the alpha that I played, I was like, wow, this is great, honestly. So I don't think it's going to be out this year. I think it's probably going to be out next year, maybe. But I am really looking forward to it. It's good that they're taking that seriously, because I feel like if they had screwed up Diablo 2, it might have been something they couldn't recover from after the Warcraft 3 fiasco. Uh, if, it, if it had been another mm. Warcraft 3, I don't think they'd be coming back from that. Yeah, I, I touched on the Warcraft 3 fiasco in my piece like that was a freaking mess holy cow <laughs> that was a very big mess and i'm actually very glad that they took the time to say okay this isn't what we want this isn't what we need we're going to move it back a bit and actually get some people who are really serious onto the job and get it done the way it should be done their mistake with warcraft 3 reforged was that they boxed themselves in with a pre-order date so oh, yeah, which meant that there were legal issues tied up into it which meant that they ah. had to release it. So they couldn't really delay it. And that became a gigantic mess within, especially wow. when they realized, I think in late 2019, thereabouts, they're like, oh, this game's not ready at all. <laughs> and it was code red. They were bringing in so many developers to work on this thing. 
and people were crunching just to get it into a passable state. There were high-level producers who were like, this game ain't ready, this game ain't ready. And then it came out, and sure enough, it wasn't ready. So, Oh, yeah. So that must have been a fun thing to write up. Bad times. Well, there was a lot of info that I... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there was a lot of info I couldn't put in this uh, piece because I wasn't able to corroborate it. So, yeah, good stuff. But so that is my Blizzard piece over on IGN. Go check it out. I did my best to do a good job of reporting on it, and I think it came out pretty, pretty well. So I am uh, now very tired, Nadia. You sound a little tired, but <laughs> it feels good to get something like that over with, you know? Yeah. All right, let's talk about the rest of the news. First of all, uh, Kentaro Amura, author of the Berserk manga, died May 6th at the age of 54. Berserk's character designs were a huge influence on dark fantasy, especially JRPGs. And if you ever saw the look of the character who's like really kind of buff and has the giant sword like Cloud or even Dante from Devil May Cry, that's very much Berserk. And that was a manga that had been around since 1989. It had a lot of fans. And it was still going, but yeah. uh, so he he's a huge loss. Everybody is really terribly sad. He had particular influence in terms of Final Fantasy on the Dark Knight class, going back to Final Fantasy II. In fact, there was a, a, a vigil in Final Fantasy XIV where the Dark Knights lined up across major towns uh, with little campfires, just kind of sitting by them, which was a very nice gesture. He, going by what I read about his condition, unfortunately he had a heart condition, and reading some of the stuff he wrote, before he died, it sounded like he was really, really, really overworked to an extent where he was very unhappy. And that's really, really a shame. He was not too active from 2011 onward. And now the the idea, the speculation is maybe he was sick and had to really, he burned out. He needed to take time for himself. And unfortunately, he still had people dogging him. Well, where's Berserk? Where's the next chapter? Where's this? Where's that? So that, that it's just not a great scene altogether. And his death, like nobody should die at 54, especially from overwork. Um, he's a huge loss. Uh, I was seeing people who are big manga aficionados were like, look, nobody did the multi-page spreads like him. Like maybe only Tezuka was better than uh, Miura. So losing such a great artist is deeply sad and he was apparently known for his multi-year sabbaticals and yeah. apparently he was very fond of games with j-pop idols or something like that so yeah very, he had a following he was very big into idol games by the end and i think some people are making fun of him for that but like i said it sounds like maybe he had burned out and just really needed to take a long long sabbatical and unfortunately I, I can, I'm not a doctor. I can't say for sure what happened, but it seems to me that if his heart was in that condition at fifty at fifty four years old, then he, he probably pushed himself a little too hard. Everybody needs to take a sabbatical. I need to take a sabbatical, Nadia. <laughs> I want to take a sabbatical, but then I'll never get back to work. <laughs> Just be on the couch, like drinking and playing PlayStation all day. A friend of mine is taking like a six month sabbatical from her job, and I'm so jealous. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I don't have that kind of uh, money. I don't. It's some like rich relative of mine popped off that I don't know about, and they want to leave me something. And then I'll take a sabbatical. <laughs> but until then, I'm basically. Go- I, I used to tell my parents I'm going to be like a boxer, the horse from Animal Farm, just work myself to death till the pigs ship me off to be turned into glue. Well, on that extremely dark note. <laughs> <laughs> so Nadia, there was some Starfield news this week. There were a couple of pieces of news actually. First of all. 
It will not be a console exclusive, according to Jeff Grubb over at GameSpeed, who says that multiple sources tell him that it will be on Xbox Series X and PC. I think that we were all kind of expecting this, but there was kind of this irrational hope that also would be on PS5. I think we've gone over this with the Elder Scrolls 6 and saying that there's just, after what Microsoft has paid for uh, Bethesda, there's just no way it's not going to take advantage of that investment. And I don't think it'll be exclusive forever, but you're certainly, certainly looking at maybe a year at least. I do think it will be exclusive forever. I don't think that there's <laughs> any way that Xbox allows this to go over to PlayStation 5. And I think that with Game Pass being what it is, I think that Xbox is more concerned about exclusives than ever. I think that it people are just salty because it's not on PlayStation 5 is what it is. Okay, because I do remember I was scrolling through Twitter and the Xbox and PlayStation 5 fanboys were at each other yet again. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh, what are you children complaining about now? I was there. I was there for Genesis and Nintendo. And you have the gall to tell me you're having a console war. Get out of my get out of my face. But yeah, they were they were going uh, crazy over the whole Starfield exclusivity thing. And oh, PlayStation 5 has no games. Well, Xbox One, and it was just back and forth. And I realized now, okay, that was that was Starfield announcing we're exclusive as if, as you said, duh, of course you are. I like my PS5 better than my Xbox. There, I said it. I like them both. They both have good games on them. I'm cool. You give me games, I play your games. I'm good. Given the choice, I would rather turn on my PS5 because I prefer the interface. Uh, For the most part, I prefer the games right now because it has Returnal and it has Miles Morales and it has Demon's Souls. And I mean, no, it doesn't have anything on the scale of Game Pass, but Game Pass is also all games that I've already played in the previous gen for the most part. So, yeah, there there is kind of that. I know I'm being reductive with Game Pass because it is a genuinely good service. And I really appreciate the ability to play games that come to Game Pass like immediately and just go, okay, I'm going to dabble. I'm going to dabble in this game and see how it is. I think the fact that Game Pass lets us dabble is so important in this market. I totally agree. But also, I prefer the PS5 controller. I prefer the interface for the most part. I think it's just more of a game experience, whereas the Xbox feels like I'm turning on my phone. It just doesn't. <laughs> it's just a, it's a little bland, if I'm being totally honest. So I, sorry, like I own both. I will play both. I've been playing Mass Effect on my Xbox, and Me too. Mass Effect Legendary Edition is better on the Xbox, but. So I will go to whichever console has the technical improvements. But in my heart, right now, given the choice, I would rather be playing my PS5. Well, my PS5 is where Final Fantasy XIV is, so that's what (laughs) I'm playing for the most part. And it looks and runs really well on the PS5. Holy crap. I don't know how I'd ever go back to doing the PS4 and doing those low times and doing those kind of janky frames and, and everything like that. I am spoiled now. But in the end, it's all about the games, right? And Starfield will be on Xbox, therefore I will play it on Xbox, so it goes. Yeah, that's that's all there is to it. Wherever the games are, that social will I go I. Also, Nadia, Starfield next year, but apparently not till late next year. So don't expect it this year, it sounds like. I wonder if E3 will so will show us some footage or anything. Uh we might get a teaser or something. We'll see. I think usually when you get a teaser that includes a, like a title screen or whatever we got for both Elder Scrolls and Starfield, you're looking at several years down the road. So this news does not surprise me at all. 
there's been a lot of leaked images uh, from Starfield. So I would say that they might show more than, you know, a title screen, which they already showed back at like E3 2018, I think. But I do think that Starfield, yeah, it's not going to be out till next year. I I agree with Jason Schreier's reporting, which I should because he's always right. But uh, <laughs> by the way, Jason's going to be on the show next week. So that'll be fun. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. Yeah. Uh, so Starfield, let's look forward to it. There will be other RPGs, I think, that will be shown for the Xbox during the show. So, And finally, a couple of quick notes. Hey, Nino Kuni 2 is coming to the Nintendo Switch. And Nadia, I am not going to crap on Nino Kuni 2. You know what? It's a fun and pretty little RPG. It's very slight. I know that like I've complained about the story and the battle system in the past, but it's cute. It's light. It's fun. Whatever. I'm happy that it's on the Switch. I will probably play it again. There was DLC that I was a little bit curious about. To be honest, some of it involved uh, President Nukem, who lost his son to the fires of hell. So I'm a little curious to see if they do anything with that. And I have to admit, looking at that trailer, as much as I get mad about the game's wasted potential, which was its main problem to me, its soundtrack is so good. And just hearing it brings back a sort of nostalgia for me that I'm just like, okay, you know what? It's not a great game, but it didn't offend me terribly. The only way it offended me was the fact that it should have done so much better with what it had. And I do have to give it points. It had a Sisters of Mercy reference, and anytime a game does that, I give it an automatic extra mark well nadia i am not going to be playing it again because i got plenty of <laughs> other rpgs um and i'm not going to play a mid-tier rpg again just because it's out on the you know uh out on the nintendo switch but i'm happy that it exists for people who are into that kind of thing in the meantime i have smt3 on my switch and i should probably play some of that so that i can talk about it yes it is it is out it's going to be fun i enjoy it very much yeah the reviews are out and they're quite positive so I have heard some complaints about the, um, number one, it's only a very bare bones port. I couldn't tell you one way or the other. Number two, I heard some complaints about the quality of the image, uh, particularly the movie quality. Hmm. Again, I can't tell you anything about that because I never played the original, but it's certainly not a fancy looking game, but it is a really good, solid RPG. And if you are used to Persona, you might be a little surprised at first with how different it is, but also how similar it is in many ways. I love looking back and seeing the little bits of lore that I know from Persona, particularly about the demons. And yeah, so if you kind of keep an open mind about it, I think you will enjoy Shin Megami Tensei 3. There's also, if things get too rough, uh, e.g. Matador keeps kicking you in the balls. There is a, a very easy casual mode that makes things a little too easy, if you ask me, but it's good to be there if uh, you are having a lot of problems, not to mention it cuts down on the random encounter rate very 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 much so that's something to keep in mind as well and finally nadia baldur's gate dark alliance releasing on nintendo switch this coming week it had been delayed after initially being released by the uh the playstation and xbox consoles because i guess there was some kind of technical difficulty but it's coming out now on switch and it's a classic action rpg so i recommend it to our fans I am actually at the point where I desperately want to get into these isometric RPGs because all of them look fantastic, but I have no idea where to start. There's so many of them now. Hades. I mean, Hades, I, I demolished. I loved Hades. I'm talking about the uh, the actual RPGs. Diablo 2 Resurrected. Yes, but... 
that's not a type. I mean, you know, the ones with like six party members and like a million choices for oh, the dialogue trees. Pillar of Eternity, Dead Fire. Really? So I, that's a good one to start with? Oh, that's a very good RPG that's kind of overlooked, honestly. Or Baldur's Gate 2. Play Baldur's Gate 2. It's a class. You can't go wrong. I was wondering about that. Like you said Baldur's Gate and it's like, well, you know what? I've been mean to play Baldur's Gate. I love D&D. I, I probably can't go wrong with it. Wait for Baldur's Gate 3 to actually come out before playing that one. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to play that till it's out of, out of alpha. All right. That's all the news. Let's continue on to the main topic. The Wii U console quest. Don't go away. Hey, RPG fans, it's your friend, Cat Bailey, host of Axe of the Blood God, and I'm here to tell you about our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Every single month, we have exclusive RPG goodness for all of our listeners, including tributes to classic games, watches of shows like The Witcher, and of course, our Pantheon of the Blood God, in which we explore classic RPGs from Final Fantasy VIII to Skies of Arcadia. Here's a glimpse of what you have been missing. Lord of the Rings, I mean, think about this. There were 900 suits of handmade armor. Wow. Within 20,000 household items and more than 1,600 pairs of individually sized prosthetic feet and ears. Everybody, there was an onset uh, blacksmith from Weta Workshop who was making all of these weapons and they put so much thought and That's so much so cool. care into designing the armor for the orcs. How would the Urukai fight? How did the berserkers work? What would the weapons actually look like? What did the Hobbit weapons look like? What do the Elven weapons look like? And so the sheer amount of costume design and weapon design mm. really made this movie something else compared to a lot of films. Whereas you compare it to, say, The Witcher, we are comparing this, we were talking about this in our Witcher watch, where we look at the, the, the empire in that film and how they just look so generic, you know? There's just yes. absolutely nothing interesting <laughs> about that costume design, that's the difference. Yeah, and uh, I really like how there is, again, a contrast between the orcs, which they are a swarming, massive army of people who are not individuals at all. They're just monsters. And you can see that one scene when they're forging their weapons, and they have a factory practically set up, like a primitive orc factory, just churning out these weapons. And it's, it's so, like, crude and ugly compared to the the beauty that went into designing the elven weapons for for the fellowship like you can see that contrast and they clearly put a lot of thought into that that was a special look at some of our patron exclusive content if you want to hear more head on over to patreon.com slash bloodgodpod now back to the episode Okay, it's time for the console RPG quest, the long-running segment in which we explore 
every single console that has come out and its RPG library, large or small. And in the case of the Wii U, it is quite small, I'm afraid. <laughs> quite infinitesimal, really. But it does exist, and there are some worthwhile games to talk about, so let's dig into it. Nadia, what is your first memory of the Nintendo Wii U? Remember how when we talked about the Wii, I mentioned I had a very pleasant time. I went to New York to get the Wii. I was with my friends. I went uh, to train down there. The weather was nice. We all just kind of waited in line and talked and came home and had a great time with Zelda. And picture that, but with the opposite, with almost everything. I waited in line again for the Wii U in New York at the uh, Toronto, sorry, at the Toronto, at the uh, the New York Nintendo Center. And the weather was terrible. It was freezing, freezing, freezing. It had actually been quite warm like a, a few days before. So, of course, it was freezing. And I waited in line. I got the Switch. Sorry, I got the Wii U finally. And I brought it home. There's nothing to really play for it except for New Super Mario Brothers U, which, to its credit, is not a bad game at all. It's actually a really, really fantastic, solid platformer, but nowhere near as exciting as a Zelda game. So, yeah, that was, like, a very, like, subdued sort of start to the Wii U for me, and I suppose it just kind of carried through the rest of its life. The first time I ever saw the Nintendo Wii U was at E3 2011, where I remember... Being at the Nintendo press conference, it was the second to last Nintendo E3 press conference ever, and they revealed the, e, the, the Wii U, and I remember the reaction was quite positive. I remember them doing things like a little swipe up with the Wii U's uh, touchscreen. I remember them turning into a golf pad and that kind of thing. They were still very much in the Wii headspace with the mm. Wii U in many ways, and I remember picking it up at uh, E3 and thinking, "Well, oh, this is pretty nice. Yeah, I like the the Wii U gamepad. This is all right. Yeah, I'm into it." And like, I really enjoyed the concept of having a, a second screen. So, so I was actually on Nintendo Voice Chat recently, <laughs> the IGN <laughs> podcast, and we were actually having a little bit of Wii U nostalgia, Nadia. Oh my god, I didn't even know that was possible. Frankly, it, well, it's you know, one year will be retro officially. <laughs> Uh, I can't even begin to imagine. Uh, but yeah, you're right. That was 2012 when it came out. So yeah. uh, who we? Yes, we were having some Wii U nostalgia because we were talking about things like the Wii, the Miiverse, which was, was a wonderful little message board system. And we were talking about the asymmetric gameplay. Remember they had the the big demo for uh, Nintendo Land where they were showing off the, the Luigi's yes. Mansion game? <laughs> yeah. And at the time, it seemed really innovative and everything. And it was. It was, like, really cool. I was like, oh, man, I love that I'm doing this asymmetric gameplay. That was kind of like a buzzword at the time. And the problem with that was when I tried to play it with my parents, who loved their Wii and loved Wii Sports, I had to explain what the heck it meant to play a game asymmetrically. And they had no idea what the heck I was talking about. Yeah, the Wii U, I am not going to say it was a bad concept. It was actually a fantastic concept. It was just a little bit ahead of its time. I don't think the components to make it work as well as it should have were cheap enough to really have that happen. So you had a console that was underpowered, didn't really do the split screen thing so well. The battery life on the on the uh, gamepad was not fantastic. 
Uh, I remember there being a lot of joke articles about how people wanted to play their Wii U in the bathroom and they couldn't because <laughs> they, the signal would cut out. Yeah. So these are all problems that the Switch like demolished handily, and that's why it became like the king of the consoles. But the Wii U had to walk so that the Switch could run. Poor Wii U. It wasn't great. I remember I bought it at launch. It was waiting for me. When I got home from a vacation, I got it all set up uh. and I actually played a lot of Nintendo Land with a group of our friends. And we played this game called Animal Crossing Sweet Days and we jokingly called it Puke and Run because you would eat up <laughs> all this fruit and these little animals would get these enormous heads. And then they would and, and then when I was uh, coming after them with the little knife and fork, they would puke up the food and run away. Right. And my friend was just an enormous troll and he would always play as the uh, frog and he would go stick to the pond forky which is a star fox 64 <laughs> reference and me yeah. i was knife and fork and i was trying to corner them in like different walls it was very intense and we'd be like screaming and yelling as like the fork <laughs> would appear on the screen and they were just trying to run away i loved animal crossing sweet days and we put so many hours into that game I think Nintendo really wanted Nintendo Land to be another Wii Sports, and it oh, certainly they wasn't. But... They they pitched it that. They were like, but what if a bunch of mini games, but with Nintendo branding? It's like Carnival Games, which sold a freaking bundle. But yeah. also they have Nintendo. It's just Nintendo branding. So this is like a slam dunk, right? All the casuals are going to love it. And the casuals like, I don't understand what asymmetric gameplay is. Yeah, the casuals were not impressed. This was the time when... Uh, Facebook gaming and web-based gaming and mobile gaming were starting mm -hmm. to really take off and give people games for like a dollar or for free. And that's where they went. They went to go play those cheap games and Nintendo was kind of left holding the gamepad, so to speak. I'll be honest, Nadia. I hated that freaking gamepad. <laughs> <laughs> when I hold it now after holding the Switch, it's just, oh my God, you do feel like a Fisher-Price piece of garbage. Yeah, and when you look at the screen, it's like looking at a freaking... So bad! It's like a Studebaker, man. Jeez. It is. And you did mention Miiverse, though, and that was that was a real phenomenon for a time, and I absolutely adored that. Because remember when, like, people could leave messages on games, which was a great idea until people started leaving messages like, my mom and dad won't f stop fighting, and you're playing Mario. <laughs> you're like, oh, let's see what hints I got for this nice Mario level. Oh, my mom keeps hitting me. What am I supposed to do oh with this? Oh, my God. I have to give props, because the absolute worst, stupidest, most fantastic thing Nintendo ever did was let people put messages in the back of that Smash stage when Smash um, Wii U came out, and you could there was that Miiverse stage. I remember distinctly going to a friend's house right after seeing the last, not the last Jedi, um, the force awakens and playing cloud. Cause I had never tried cloud and I wanted to try him out. So we went to the, Wii, uh, the, the Miiverse stage right in the background, huge letters, Han Solo dies. And, <laughs> <laughs> and right, right next to that undertale sucks because undertale was a huge thing right then. <laughs> But the Han Solo dies thing, I was just like, oh my god, I can't believe I just read that. Yes, I can. What am I saying? I remember when they shut off the Miiverse, there was a massive tribute to it, and everybody was going through the art and being like, oh, this is such a good time. I really enjoyed it. There was some really fantastic art, and this was not exactly a a, a fancy editing program. Some of the, the effort people put into these pictures are just amazing. 
Yeah, no, I couldn't believe how good some of the art was given the limitations of that touchscreen. But people manage incredible things with very limited tools. So hats off to them. Absolutely. And I still think Miiverse was a great idea, even though it just did not take off. And that is one of the rare examples of something that would not work on the Switch quite as well as it did on the Wii U. Well, Nadia, the Nintendo Wii U was released on November 18th, 2012. It was Nintendo's first HD console. It probably came out two years too late because by then the Wii was such a dead letter. Like people were so freaking done with the Wii by 2011, (laughs) honestly. 2010, it had started to run out of gas. 2011, it was out of gas 2012 people are like what is this thing oh my god please give us a new console seriously and finally nintendo's like all right here is the wii u it is hd but we're not going to call it the wii hd no we are going to call it the wii u so you are as confused as possible (laughs) (laughs) even the name wii i remember a lot of pushback against that when it came out like what the hell are you doing nintendo but then Mm -hmm. because the console became so big it was kind of a an affectionate household name, and but it still wasn't really good enough to attach a U to it and have people say, okay, this is the stupidest sounding thing ever. What are you doing here? And a lot of people were very confused because people just get easily confused with uh, <laughs> branding, which is why I, I'm half convinced that calling their Microsoft calling their console the Xbox Series X probably cost them uh, sales because people are like, is this the new one? What what is this? Is this the next one? The naming conventions. Yeah. They they make my head hurt. I actually really despise the naming conventions for the Xbox, but I will probably go into that some other day cuz it is so I still like I'm still like, "Oh, I'm going to play my uh, I'm going to play my Xbox Series X." No, wait. I mean my Xbox Series like I just get confused all the time. I am a news writer now and I have to write Xbox Series X with a little uh symbol oh, and then S. Xbox S. Series XS. It's the worst. Excess. I just got that. (laughs) Uh, Very clever. (laughs) The Wii U, nobody realized that it was an actual successor to the Wii. So people were going, should I buy this? I have no idea. And it looked like a Wii too. It was just black, you know, and it had a screen, a big old fat screen that made its price be too high because they were bundled in every single Wii U and ultimately killed it. I think that was definitely a big part of the problem. That and when Nintendo made its E3 presentation, they showed the system alongside regular Wii remotes, which did not clear up the confusion whatsoever. And as you said, it was a very unassuming looking system, which is a black box, which that's fine. But again, E3 was supposed to be for press first and foremost, not just us, but uh, also the the normies <laughs> so, like so they're looking at this and saying as you said oh is this just the we what is going on here so it, we were confused as games journalists a lot of us were confused so no wonder that they were confused well the wii u sold about 13 million units which is one of the worst numbers period for pretty much any nintendo platform that is not named the virtual console People thought that the GameCube did poorly. The Wii U was an abject disaster and just kind of limped along from 2012 to 2017, not really doing... They could sold 13 million units in five years? That's, in, that's ridiculous. I had no idea the number was that low. When I looked it up, I said, there's no way that's true. And I looked it up, I double-checked, and on their, on their official notices, yes, it was 13 million. 
And to give you an idea, a comparison, the Switch is coming up on 90 million pretty quickly and it's not showing any signs of slowing down. Yeah, and the Switch has been around for four years at this point. This is year four of the Nintendo Switch. And it's still, I would say, it's getting a little long in the tooth, but it still holds up just fine for the most part. Whereas the Wii felt dated the second that I turned it on. Whereas the Switch, yes, that is the Switch is definitely behind in terms of technology, but it feels like its own thing. And that is so important because the Wii U came out with all these ports, third-party ports, of games that had been on the previous generation systems. And it's just like, okay, great. I already played Mass Effect. I already played Batman Arkham City. Who cares? What can the Wii U do for me now? And the Switch doesn't really have that problem. It's its own little gate with with its really its own identity. Yeah, when the Wii U came out in 2012, people were sick of the Xbox 360 and the PS3. The PS3 yeah. and the Xbox 360 were dated at this time. And the Wii U were about as powerful as those systems, maybe in some ways not in, as good in some ways. It certainly loaded slow. It felt terrible. So I so people were already waiting for PS4 and Xbox One. And once those consoles came out, the freaking Wii U didn't have a chance. It was almost like another Dreamcast where it got obliterated by the next generation coming in. Except that the Dreamcast had good games. It had a reason for being. No, that's not to say that the Wii U didn't have some good games, honestly. But out of the Dreamcast was... How should I? How here's the the difference between the Wii U and the Dreamcast. First of all, the Dreamcast had a lot of it; just had real strengths, right? It had fighting games, had a real personality in the way that it had all of these wonderful arcade games. It was one of the last true arcade consoles. Go listen mm-hmm. to our Dreamcast console RPG quest, and it was kind of Sega at its most effervescent and creative and interesting. So many weird games coming out for it that people remember really fondly. And it was also kind of ahead of its time in a meaningful way. In a, like it was trying to push online multiplayer in the year 2000, which was like a solid two to three years before any other console was able to really be able to do it. Whereas the Wii was like, we've got this Fisher Price a uh, little gamepad thing <laughs> that you could play. Hooray! If people are like, do not want this. Do not want it. So do not want. What? Do not want at all. That is true. The Dreamcast, as you said, had its own identity. And the fighting games and the arcade games were a big part of that. And Wii U, outside of Nintendo's games, again, Nintendo is the only one who really knows how to use their own systems. The third-party contributions were mostly, well, okay, here's the game that re- released last generation but hey there's a map on the on the game screen now Woohoo! yay and nintendo to its credit again knew how to use this second screen except when it came to star fox of course because they actually came out with some of their best games during the wii u season uh because i guess because they were so desperate (laughs) to show off what they could do so to their credit they actually gave us like splatoon they gave us mario maker they gave us uh 3d world which i love i don't care what anyone says so, yeah, they certainly, backed into a corner, they certainly kind of reinvented themselves in many ways. And that, that was also the, the time when they really tried to connect with fans. Uh, Iwata became kind of a figure, the Nintendo Directs became a thing. Uh, we'll get into it, but they released Earthbound on the virtual console. That was a huge PR move for them. So I don't want to say that nothing good came out of the Wii U, because, of course, a lot of good things did come out of it. It's just not a profit. It was a tough time to be a Nintendo fan. It felt like Nintendo was just completely irrelevant at this time. The 3DS was kind of 
chugging along, but it wasn't really setting the world on fire for the most part. And we used stands. They did exist. And they were they were really pushing their chosen console, but it just did not get have any oxygen in mainstream gaming whatsoever. And writing about Nintendo games, I mean, people still cared about Nintendo, but there was a general sense of malaise around the actual brand. It was uh, it was depressing. It was a depressing time for Nintendo. I think it was. You mentioned actually how uh, the last generation systems, uh, how they compare to the Wii U. I think even that was a, a strike against the Wii U because, say, we've talked in the past about how the Xbox 360 was made of off-the-shelf components. It was quite easy to develop for. The Wii U, by all accounts, was not easy to develop for because you had to split that processing power between the gamepad and the console itself. And again, you mentioned it yourself, those, those really slow loading terms were a consequence. There were some interesting things about the Wii U. Um, Nintendo was being a little bit inventive at this time. So whenever Nintendo is out of favor, which has happened over the years, they tend to get weird, which isn't a bad thing necessarily because weird Nintendo is more fun than just big old juggernaut Nintendo. And big old juggernaut Nintendo is actually kind of annoying in some ways because they will just steamroll game journalists who want (laughs) access. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. Um, they invented we amiibos at this time. They really jumped in on the toys to life phenomenon. And amiibos might be one of the most lasting kind of parts of the Wii U's legacy, Nadia. I've got a lot of them sitting on my shelf right now. And in fact, this past week there was a big old amiibo uh controversy because Nintendo locked gameplay features behind what amounted to physical DLC. Yeah, there was a big to-do over that for sure. I have my fair share of Amiibos. I haven't really collected them actively in a long time. I think the last one I got was Kix from Animal Crossing because he's one of my favorites. But I was actually talking to Mike about that today at the time of this recording and saying I didn't know Amiibo were still pretty hot because he was complaining about how not only was it locked behind that physical piece of DLC, but not a piece of DLC that's easy to get. People already pre-ordering that Zelda because it's a Zelda and a Loftwing and it's off the shelves completely apparently at this point so he's like okay well now you have this really annoying feature locked behind this really annoying toy that you can't get so people are still out there buying amiibo and yes they uh they apparently a lot of them still have a a lot of juice to them so i had no idea and i should actually get joker at least in the hero it was wild how popular amiibos were people went nuts for them yeah, you could not find Amiibos. In fact, I have some of the first-generation ones that were really hard to find, like I have Chrom and Lucina. In many ways, it presaged Nintendo's current strategy, which is more and more Nintendo is all about toys, animated shows, a freaking amusement park, because they're like, <laughs> oh, we've got all these incredibly valuable characters. Let's leverage them. And maybe the yeah. Amiibos were kind of the first volley in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Nintendo has always been a toy maker. Of course, that's its history. And looking at my collection now, there's a really interesting, like it started out with regular figures, just people standing in their Smash Brothers poses. It really evolved to some really like creative uh, directions. And I think the fact that these are Nintendo characters still gives them that collectability uh, feature to them, whereas Skylanders and other Toys to Life uh, offerings just kind of fizzled out because... I mean, no no hate against Skylanders, but I don't really care about collecting 10 versions of ugly-ass Spyro from that generation. 
Another interesting aspect of the Wii U's legacy was its virtual console, which was bad. It was worse than the uh, Wii's virtual console because its emulation was just too dark and had like some problems with that. And uh, honestly, its actual selection was pretty dismal. And it was just a whole dang mess trying to get your old virtual console games over to the Wii U. I don't know if anybody remember this. You had to create an emulation shell of your Wii on the Wii U which you would then access, and then you could play your old Wii Virtual Console games, which, by the way, I was a psychopath and did, but it took me like a whole afternoon to get everything transferred over there because I was like, I'm not losing access to these games, some of which are actually somewhat hard to get. So, but the Wii U itself, but then people had to rebuy games on the Wii U Virtual Console, and it and the selection was terrible. You could pay to upgrade, and the upgrade would get you certain some benefits, like I think using the Wii U control pad or whatever. I don't remember what the whole business was, but yeah, it's like the Switch. It's like, oh yeah, you can play Mario World on the Wii U. Game yeah, pad if yeah, you really want to. As you said, the selection though was pretty dismal, and that was funny because by the end of the Wii's life, we realized, wow, what a great idea that Nintendo completely underutilized, at least in, in North America, and we didn't realize how bad it truly could get. And got really, really terrible with the Wii U. Well, oh, the Wii's virtual console was great. It had so many uh, wonderful, interesting artifacts on it. And the Wii U, by comparison, was just itty-bitty. It did, however, have one thing over the Wii, and that it had a GBA virtual console, which was yes. interesting, because the GBA was, in its own way, a weird virtual console. I mean... People forget about this. Nintendo released, this was the first time that Nintendo re-released old Nintendo games on the GBA. Like you could buy individually packaged copies of like the original Zelda, the original Super Mario Brothers on your GBA. That was their, they called it the Famicom Classics Collection or the NES Classics Collection back in 2004, thereabouts. So, uh, So it's ironic to me. That the Wii U had the GBA Virtual Console, a system that, to my mind, was one of the first real instances of effectively being a glorified emulation platform in the number of NES and Super NES uh, ports that went on to the thing. Oh, absolutely. I almost caved and bought Zelda 2 for the GBA back in the day because I just... GBA, uh, Zelda 2 for all its flaws, it was my first Zelda, so I always had a soft spot for it. I do remember playing... uh, area of sorrow on the gba emulator and really having a great time with it i had played it on the original game boy advance many years ago and i was just like okay great i'd love to play dawn of sorrow now that wasn't there though in fact the ds was also emulated on the wii u and it just got nothing practically the one thing that i like about the wii u's gba virtual console i had some good rpgs that at that time were not super accessible unless you kept your gba which i did hello some of them included Golden Sun, which I'm told has a little bit of a following among RPG fans, as well as Fire Emblem, which, of course, is a classic and everybody should play. And this was something that ta- took me by surprise, Nadia. Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. Yeah, when you said that, I thought, no way, that can't be true. But no, you're right. It came out on the Wii U Virtual Console. And that's a surprise to me because thinking off the top of my head, it seems like Square Enix's support for the Wii U Virtual Console was not great. I don't even know if like Final Fantasy 2 and 3 showed up there the way they showed up on the Wii. Oh, they definitely did not, no. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it took forever just to get those games onto the Wii in the first place. They definitely did not put them on the Wii U. That's too bad because I actually had a great time playing the old SNES Final Fantasy 2 again after so many years. Sometimes you just got to go back to these those <laughs> awful Back to the classics. Back to the real classics. The Wii U GBA Virtual Console was also kind of cool because you could play it on TV. So you could play games like Metroid Zero Mission on your television. And Metroid Zero Mission great game. is an amazing game. It, In my opinion, is the second best Metroid game after Super Metroid. It is really, really good. Another interesting artifact, and I think you already mentioned this, Nadia. This was like one of the first times that Earthbound finally freaking came to an emulation platform after a very long wait. People were going, where the heck is that Earthbound? What? It never came out on the Wii. People were getting mm-hmm. so annoyed. And honestly, I wanted to play it. I think the FOMO of not having Earthbound served to elevate its platform. It served to elevate its profile more than an actual release ever could have. I think so. I love love earthbound but i think people realized okay this game starts off really slow and really difficult once you get over that hump it's actually fantastic but i remember playing earthbound emulated long long time ago and realizing number one that version was copy protected so you were assaulted by enemies from all sides number two just the fact that you're with ness and you do have to deal with inventory management and storage and stuff that you would not have to deal with like in modern rpgs Maybe that did turn some people off, but once you gain Paula, I think the game really opens up, and that's when it became like a really special game to me. It also released Earthbound Beginnings, and which was the original NES game of Mother, which I had always thought it had come out in the North America, but actually it had not. It had not come out. It had not. It came. You know what? It's funny. We should really do an episode about this someday. There are a lot of NES RPGs that came very close to getting released here, and had like preliminary localizations and one of those games was earthbound uh the original earthbound and they just never released it even though it was ready to go because by then the snes was either on the horizon or it was already here and so a lot of these games including final fantasy 2 like the actual final fantasy 2 was were lost by the wayside because it was just figured well it's not really worth it as for the games itself the the wii had some interesting games on it that definitely had their fans I remember over at US Gamer, which covered the Wii U, we uh, gave Mario Maker Game of the Year in 2015. I, I think it was 2015. It beat out some notable competition when it came out. It was either 2015 or 2016. Who even is counting at this point? And also Mario Kart 8 came out on the Wii U. And I don't know, that was like one of the first real moments where the Wii U actually seemed to be having a little bit of a moment because people were actually buying the Wii U to play Mario Kart 8. They were like pumped for it because Mario Kart 8 was awesome and gorgeous and people loved it. Yeah, I think the Wii U, the more you look at its library and really analyze which games came out when, you really see Nintendo getting a hold of what it means to have Mario in HD. And it looked pretty fantastic i remember being really wowed by super mario 3d world mm-hmm. the like you'd be in a rainy environment and there'd be like raindrops on the camera and they had these really super full color these really super colorful levels with bowser in them and it was just actually quite a spectacle and i remember being very impressed with it yeah that was yeah i i agree with you nadia because the early nintendo games that came out on the wii u were just not that impressive like the first one was new super mario brothers u which kind of, like, it's a good game, but it should tell you where the direction that the Wii U was going because, first of all, 
it had already been done on the Wii. And second mm-hmm. of all, I mean, it wasn't that impressive. Is that the game you want to launch a console with? Is that the the anchor flagship game that you're launching a console with? Probably not. It its problem, as with the problem with the Wii U in general, it just looked too much like the game that was already on the Wii. And even the little really cool flourishes that differentiated it, like the background with uh, Starry Night, that was so few and far between in instances that people just weren't that impressed by what they played. Even though looking back at Super Mario Brothers U now, because you can get on the Switch, of course you can, you really see what a solid game it is and how well designed it is. It's just, wow, some of Nintendo's best level design, frankly. And then most of the games that came out on the Wii U, most of the best ones, like Donkey Kong Tr- Country, Tropical Freeze, for example, Wonderful 101, uh, all of the Mario games, Mario Kart 8, they, I mean, freaking Breath of the Wild, they all came mm. out on the Switch. And at a certain point, just there was no reason to keep a Wii U around or even remember that it was a thing that existed once upon a time because the Switch just completely subsumed it it just took all the best stuff from it and you know what i'm okay with that i'm okay with having all these wii u games ported over to the switch i'm okay with having tokyo mirage sessions sharp fe move over to the switch i would be very sad if it were locked to the wii u for all time yeah i think for nintendo faces a lot of controversy these days for quote-unquote porting games at full price or whatever and I understand that argument, but at the same time, I don't want these games to be lost on the Wii U. And they're fantastic games that I really don't mind playing, paying full price for. As someone who did buy many of them on the Wii U, I would so much rather have them there at full price and give people a chance to experience them for themselves. Because 13 million sold, a lot of people had no idea that Sharp FE was even a thing. That was a great little game. Most people don't didn't play them in the first place. Unless you're one of the 13 million people to actually buy a Wii U, you probably missed out on it. <laughs> exactly. So it's really if Nintendo hadn't gone out and revamped these games and re-released them on the Wii U uh, on the Switch, that would be a really really stupid move by them, frankly. Maybe the one RPG that is really notable and definitely worth covering is Xenoblade Chronicles X, a game that when it came out, I don't think we actually even reviewed it on this podcast and a lot of the reason was that us gamer was understaffed and xenoblade chronicles x was like a hundred hour game and i didn't have time to freaking play that game and it kind of looked boring to me (laughs) if i'm being totally honest i'm sorry i failed as a games journalist but i just didn't want to play it but i did play it um some years later and it's actually better than i expected it's very grindy in many ways, mm-hmm. especially when you have to get the license to get the mechs. There's a lot of fetch quests out there, but it's a very inventive RPG, Nadia, just in the way that you're exploring this big kind of desolate open world that you eventually are able to build up to mechs, how it's so open-ended and you can encounter monsters that are way more powerful than you just by mistake. The battle system is really interesting. The way that it integrates the actual mechs is really interesting. It doesn't, I think we've been dismissive of it in the past on this podcast, but maybe this is one that actually does deserve another shot on the Switch. I remember interviewing uh, the one of the top guys at Monolith Soft, and that was a hell of a thing because that was a really interesting way to interview someone where you were talking to an interpreter who would talk to the person in Japan and talk back to you, and it was just the, the reception was terrible. But I do remember it was so, it was a very informative interview, and one of the things that came up was Xenoblade Chronicles X, because we all assumed, hey, this is coming to the Switch, right? Like, it's a given at this point. 
And they said, no, probably not. I'm like, why would you not put Xenoblade Chronicles X on the Switch? They're like, money, money, time. And then I, re- I realized, okay, for all the ports that are coming to the Switch, it's not as easy as, we- as waving a magic wand, like we've all kind of been convincing ourselves it is. So I don't know if we'll get any sort of different information anytime soon. But for now, yeah, Xenoblade Chronicles X really is one of, uh, one of the very, very few lost games on the, on the Wii U in that if you want to play this game, that is your only choice. Yeah, that is the problem, isn't it? And speaking of talking to Tetsuya Takahashi, I also interviewed him during the good old USG days. <laughs> and it spoke to where Nintendo was at this time that they were actually granting Nintendo inter- or US Gamer interviews. Well, they, the, the, the one that I got afterwards, I think, was when they were in a much better spot because that's when Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and Torn of the Golden Country had come out. And those were surprise hits for them. They were mm. actually extremely surprised at how well it did in the West. So I was talking to them about that. But Xenoblade Chronicles X, I had it. I probably still have it somewhere. And I am, as you know, a huge Xenoblade Chronicles fan. And But part of the reason I love Xenoblade Chronicles is because it has these really strange connections to fantasy. And Chronicles X was really more sci-fi. You're exploring a standard planet, which to its credit is filled with some really interesting fauna. And it has that old signature you mentioned where you are wandering around on an overworld. Yay, I'm having fun. And all of a sudden, a monster 50 times your level will come after your ass because you got a little too close to his territory. And you're just like, ah, running, trying to like get away from it. That is the Xenoblade Chronicle experience right there. But I was just not a big fan of the sci-fi element. I want to be on the backs of huge titans. I don't really want to be in a mech. Yeah, I can understand the appeal. Nadia. Nadia. I know, I'm sorry. I, I like I, I like animals. <laughs> I like animals better than mechanicals. What can I say? Mechanical animals. Oh, wow, Nadia! I think we have to break up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been a good co- podcast, everyone. See you some other time. It's been five years, and I'm just learning about this now. And I'm just gonna have to go and think about some things. I'm not saying I hate mechs. I just thought it was cooler to walk on the backs of Titans instead. I'm so glad they brought that back for Xenoblade Chronicles 2. And I'm still actually kind of salty that, okay, Xenoblade Chronicles X doesn't have a lot of connections to the, I don't think it has any story connection whatsoever to the other games, but they still brought back the stupid Nopons. They keep trying to make the Nopons a thing, and I hate those little buggers. <laughs> Look, they have to have a mascot character, and those are the mascot characters for that series. Stop it. Make another one. There's just lots of cute little animals in that series. Stop making no pawns a thing. Not going to happen. I will give Xenoblade Chronicles X credit in the sense that they did not just do another Xenoblade Chronicles kind of like they did not just do a straight line sequel like they did with Xenoblade Chronicles 2. They did something that was actually kind of interesting and inventive. And I appreciate any game that takes a risk because it is so dang hard to take risks with video games these days because they're massive undertakings. So uh, hats off to you, Takahashi and Monolith, for taking this idea and being like, but what if we explored this big desolate open world that kind of vaguely reminds us of Breath of the Wild, a vastly superior game that came out a couple years later? Yeah, the overworld for Xenoblade Chronicles X was a little bit lacking in terms of stuff to do and animals to chase down and all that stuff. But it did still have... I One thing I always loved about Xenoblade games, all of them, is that they always open with this really big plains area full of like giant monsters. Like They had, for Xenoblade Chronicles X, they had those like big dinosaurs walking around. I thought that was super cool. 
So like the mech elements are in Xenoblade Chronicles and Xenoblade Chronicles 2, but not as much, I don't think. Yeah. Certainly not compared to the original Xeno Gears. So I actually really dig the fact that Xenoblade Chronicles X makes giant robots so, so front and center. And it's really cool when you go from being on foot for a good chunk of the game, like 30 hours, as I already mentioned, this game has some yeah. major pacing issues. But when you get yes. into the mech, the, the sense of scope and scale completely changes. And now you're fighting these giant monsters. It's very cool. It is like there's no such thing to me as a bad Xenoblade Chronicles game. It's just such a Monolith Soft has a weird imagination that I appreciate so much. All right. Well, there's not a lot else to cover in terms of RPGs on the Nintendo Wii U. God knows I <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. God knows I looked. Yeah. Did Undertale come out on it? The Undertale came out on it. No, right? no, 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 no. Just that was just a PC thing. That was a PC thing for a while, and then it came out to Vita, and then eventually, like, kind of leaked out to other consoles. But I don't. Someone will correct me if we're wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was never a Wii thing, Wii U thing. These are the two games that I think I played the most on my Wii U: Shovel Knight, um, of course, a game that I played with the Pro Controller. Which, by the way, I did not like the Pro Controller. No, it sucked. It was kind of a miserable. And yet, yeah, there will be people yell at us for this because there are people who believe that the Pro Controller for the Wii U was really good, but I did not like it. Um, yeah. it was kind of a miserable way. It was kind of miserable playing that thing because I also did not like using the big, kind of ungainly, mm, unwieldy, yeah, actual gamepad. Um, when I watch Game Center CX and they're doing promotional things where they'll be playing some retro game using the Wii U, I like get a headache just staring <laughs> at them playing on the giant ungainly uh, Wii U tablet, and then. The other game that I think I played the most on it was the uh, Nintendo NES Remix, which yes, uh, for the Wii great. U. Which, oh my God, please bring that to the Switch. I love it so much. There, that, there are so many things that would work so well in the modern era that Nintendo has left behind, and that is one of them. It feels like NES Remix was their answer to. Uh, at the time, there's a whole bunch of cheap mobile games coming out that were all about like you know bite-sized experiences, and that that's exactly what their response was, and it's a great great series like come on uh game center cx2 and one and two uh the games based on the 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 series for the nintendo ds where you're playing kind of these retro styled games um yeah it's very very good i i have retro game master 2 on my um my ds but the point is that the developers of that worked on nes remix and in many ways that was a prototype for that uh mm -hmm. the bummer of it was because they moved over to NES Remix to create just this fantastic tribute to NES games, they weren't working on Game Center CX3, which was terrible on the 3DS. Oh, oh, my oh God. no, I didn't know that. That's yeah. Bad. Oh, yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. The, the studio that took it over did a really, really poor job and oh. killed the video games as a result. So that's a bummer. Oh, that's too bad. Whereas NES Remix, phenomenal uh, and hilarious, especially when you get some very weird remixes between the various games. And I also learned how to play a lot of games that I had never really understood on the NES because the challenges were tacitly teaching you how the mm -hmm. games worked, which was neat. It was, it was educational and fun. So, Nadia, let us sum up the legacy of the Wii U. And I think the legacy of the Wii U can be summed up as, man, I really want that game on Switch. <laughs> uh, sad to say for the Wii U, that is exactly its legacy. Looking at its 
the meager few games that have not come over to the Switch and saying, why isn't that on the Switch yet? It was just a bad time for Nintendo. Like, I, okay, I have some nostalgia in the sense that, um, rest in peace, Iwata, it was, uh, you were greatly missed and you were mm-hmm. a truly wonderful part of Nintendo and like your weird creativity, I think, like I feel the gap of that in Nintendo. But when I look at the Wii U itself, it just, it was kind of a misgotten follow-up to the Wii. Very watered down. Wasn't that interesting. It was poorly conceived in terms of the actual controller. It was a real bear to actually play the thing. It was dated pretty much the second that it showed up. It had nothing really to recommend it. It had some interesting, quirky games, but it did not have any true strengths on its own outside of Nintendo. And... I mean, it just tells you everything that Nintendo stopped production in January 2017 because they were just like, even we are sick of this thing. Get rid of it. Jeez. <laughs> oh, they dropped that like a hot potato. They did not keep that around. And the, the second screen functionality, they tried to experiment with it and do some weird things. There was a year where Miyamoto did some weird tech demos. One of them, which I believe became Star Fox Zero, which yeah, that was a whole thing. But yeah, like, I don't know, the Wii U, definitely probably my least favorite Nintendo console, and it's not particularly close outside of the Virtual Boy, which is, again, its whole thing. Yeah, I have to agree. It's certainly down there for me, if not right at the bottom. And I think I summed it up when I said earlier in this episode, the Wii U walked so the Switch could run. If not for the Wii U, we would not have the Switch. And I think that's its legacy, sad as it is to say. It's like, not a terrible legacy, but it's not great. Thank you to the Wii U for giving us Splatoon. I do really appreciate that. Yeah, Splatoon's fantastic. Thank you for that. And Mario Maker. Good stuff, too. But Yeah, and I have to say there's one thing where the Wii U did excel was Mario Maker. Not to say Mario Maker 2 was bad. It was actually really excellent. It had some great new features. It was a great upgrade to the old formula. But without that dedicated gamepad, it became much harder to play. And I feel like people did not have as much fun as they did with the original Wii U. As far as best RPG, I would say it's probably Tokyo Mirage Shutson's Sharp FE, which wasn't an amazing game in many ways, but it was very nice and very playable. It's now out on Nintendo Switch, and if you want to hear us talk about it some more, you should go listen to the episode where we were talking about it when it first came out, I think in early 2020. Yeah, I would say Sharp FE, extremely slimy overlooked, if not outright mocked when it first came out on the Switch. People had no idea what to make of it. Sorry, when it came out on the Wii U. By the time it came to the Switch, people were a lot more accepting of Persona and that kind of idle weirdness, and that was in its favor. Uh, not to mention the Switch, of course, was hot as hell. But it's still, as you said, more of a 4 out of 5 RPG. I think that's ultimately what I gave it in the end, because it's not exactly a blockbuster classic, but it's pleasant enough. I'd say I'd give it to that or Xenoblade Chronicles X, which, again, was not my favorite, but it certainly had some really some admirable in- innovations, and I'd would not mind seeing it on the Switch sometime. One last thing that I want to observe about the Wii U, you can see Nintendo evolving in real time as it is coming out, and I think it's tied to what you were pointing out about uh, with, uh, for example, Super Mario 3D World and Mario Kart 8, where it was leaving the Wii era behind and moving slowly but surely into what would become the Switch era, which was less gimmick focused and more classic classic game focused now the, there are vestiges of the Wii's legacy still there 
can still use the motion controllers with the Nintendo Switch. You can still, uh, I mean, Ring Fit is Wii as F, right? And of course, Oh, I love Ring Fit. Same with Game Builder Garage, right? These concepts that feel very Wii-like, right? But the Wii U was very much a successor to the Wii. And frankly, when the Wii U died, I was just really happy to be leaving behind the, the Wii remote and all of that stuff. Like, I was like, I am done with this. I'm finished. Like, let's yeah. move on. New era for Nintendo. And frankly, the Nintendo now, uh, for the most part, a lot better than it was in yeah. that period. I have to agree, even though, as you said, interacting with Nintendo could be a bit of a pain in the ass. Although I would blame that more on the time that one person on 4chan leaked the entirety of Super Mario not Super Mario RPG, but Mario and Luigi uh, Superstar Saga came out with a remake for the 3DS, and someone got a hold of it, and someone leaked the ROM, and man, Nintendo was not happy. (laughs) And we all suffered for it. All right, that is our console RPG quest for the Wii U. Hey, Wii U stands, are you out there? Are you listening to this podcast? Come defend your favorite console. I want to know why you love it. I'm sure that there are reasons. I mean, perhaps it's because of the Amiibos, or the Miiverse, or the second screen, or... You just had a game that we kind of overlooked and you're like, hey, I I had a lot of good times with the Wii U. And you know what? I want to hear about them. Send a letter to cat at bloodgodpod.com. And after this, Nadia, I think we're going to have maybe two more episodes left of the console RPG quest. Maybe three? Because the next one is Nintendo Switch. That's pretty much it. Mm. We'll be at the end of our journey, Nadia. It's hard to imagine that we caught up. It's We've been at this for a while, but it just felt like one of those things that would go on forever. And I mean, hell, next time we have an, another generation, I'm sure we'll catch up to it. But yeah, that's uh, it's been quite a journey. Well, we'll do the PS5 and the Xbox Series X eventually, but they need to get some games first. Uh, yeah, we will get there. The Switch by itself. God, we could probably cover two episodes with that. Uh, you think? But <laughs> And then after that, you know, I kind of want to rank them. Kind of want to rank the consoles? That might be a fun special. Like for their RPG inclusion? Yeah, Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. And then finally, I mean, yeah, so, and we should do a wrap-up. So maybe that's like three episodes for the console RPG quest. And then uh, that'll be that. Though, there's still more to cover. I mean, we've got to do PC next, so. Oh, God. That's your department. Yep. That's your department, Reverend. That'll carry us all the way through, probably to the end of the year, at least. And then uh, we'll start thinking about other another series who knows we'll see okay nadia it's time for the epic boss battle of the week of the blood god the segment in which we explore a classic boss battle from rpg history and this week nadia we got one from earthbound tell me a little bit about this encounter The final encounter of the game with the boss known as Gygas or Gigas. I'm not sure how to pronounce that exactly. All we know is he's a horrible terror from beyond the stars. When you start the game, you are told that you are told by a bee from the future, because of course it's Earthbound, that Gygas has basically consumed the world, consumed everything, and left them left everything in nothingness, and it's just a horrible place to exist. So, Ness, please fix this problem. Now 
Gygus has an interesting history behind him in terms of he's connected to the first Earthbound, and we know him in the second game as literally the Void. I don't know, like, how familiar are you with Stephen King and It? Extremely. I read it. It was... This is very Lovecraftian in that it's a terror from beyond the stars. It's exactly what Gygus is, and you are literally fighting a background layer of undulating horror. Again, you are four children who are using the power of prayer to defeat Gygus because, of course, you can't hit him physically. He is a, a, a horrible monstrosity who is being driven... He has been driven insane by pain and loss for reasons that I'll get into in a minute. But the only way to defeat him is to use Paula's prayer ability, which to this point in the game has been useless. No one really knew what it was for. But when things look hopeless, you, she starts praying. And she calls upon, like... It's, it's very much one of those anime love-ins where everyone kind of gives their power. But in this case, it's like you're thinking of the NPCs you've met up until this point, and they start thinking of you for reasons they don't understand. And Like your mother thinks of you, like the, the Runaway Five, the band thinks of you. Your friends think of you who are all who all been left back on earth and that's how you gain the power to defeat guy guess every time you have one of those little prayer sessions he gets whacked for thousands and thousands of hit points now the reason why guy guess is this horrible monstrosity is because he actually was an alien in the first game the first earthbound he had form he was an orphan baby alien basically and the grandparents of the game's hero uh, raised Gygus, and when Gygus lost them, he lost his, his only mother and basically turned into a horrible thing. And that's what you fight in Earthbound. Now, the interesting thing about Gygus, I have to say, is also he, in his original form as an alien, resembles Mewtwo very, very strongly. So the teams, I think there were there was a lot of crossover going on there. Like, in fact, in Earthbound, there is an, uh, there is an item you can use called Dragonite, which turns you into a dragon with the name Dragonite yes. right there. Yeah, exactly. Well, it was about the same time. Pokemon yeah. was in development around that time. Yeah, absolutely. It was Ape. Uh, there was a lot of crossover going on. Uh, HAL Labs as well, I think, was involved. Because, uh, of course, uh, Iwata saved Earthbound when it was in dire straits. Because Thank you, Iwata. Major... We appreciate yeah. you. There was a major programming issue with the whole... You know how the, the maps in Earthbound are all kind of isometric, interconnected. They're, they're very unique for an SNES RPG, actually. Uh, they could not get that to work. And you would have said, give me like two seconds. And of course he fixed everything. So that was a water for you. But Gygus in Earthbound is still infamous because it's a very disturbing battle that's very, very unorthodox for an RPG. When I first played it, I was like, holy crap, this is it. Uh, not like this is it. This is it, IT capital. Because I know it is supposed to be Lovecraftian and it is. But the very concept of children against this they are literally trapped in the deadlights, as they were called in, in Stephen King's book. And they have to use wishes and prayers and hope and friendship to the only thing that's going to defeat this horror from beyond the stars that will drive us insane if we keep looking at it. So I appreciated that as a fan of the book, as weird as it got at times. And that is this week's epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. Do you have a submission for this particular segment? We would love to hear it. Send us a note on the mailbag over on the Discord, and we may read it over on the show. But in the meantime, this episode has gone long. We are ready to be done, and enjoy our weekend. Or in your case, enjoy your week. But 
We will be back next week, as always, with our special guest, Jason Schreier, which is going to be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, if you enjoy the show, make sure to go to review it. Follow us on all of the social media channels. I'm at the underscore Capot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod, where you can get a special access to unique episodes at the $5 and $10 level, including our Summer of the Rings content, our Pantheon of the Blood God deep dives, and our special anniversary tribute to The Legend of Zelda. There's so much to talk about. Oh, yeah, we did Neon Genesis and Evangelion as well. That was a lot of fun, too. But go check out all of that. In the meantime, that's it for us, for Nadia and myself. Thanks for listening, and until next time, happy adventure.